So the question for this week was actually uh, put up by Jeffrey Ventrella, who I hope would call in, but it related to uh, simulating spiders. And I thought it was a particularly interesting topic because um, certainly in correspondence, and Gerald was on the most recent correspondence, it seemed to be an interesting discussion of kind of genetics versus intelligence. Jeffrey went back to the Whitreed paper, uh, the fabled Whitreed paper associated with spider web building from 1965, which looked at giving spiders uh, various kinds of uh, drugs, including caffeine. I thought the spider on caffeine was particularly indicative of my own experiences of caffeine, and watching what kind of webs they built. Now, Gerald, some background to this, Richard Dawkins wrote a, a section on a book relating to spider web building. For the folks who aren't familiar with that, would you like to give some introduction to it? Uh, like I said, and when we were uh, uh, exchanging emails, this is uh, one of my favorite Dawkins books because uh, it's uh, it's called the uh, the extended phenotype, and and what it talks about is uh, sort of not limiting the phenotype to to the actual body, you know, in, in your concept of what the genes produce, excuse me, produce. Um, but instead to look at uh, the entire uh, sort of microcosm that a, that a creature creates as being potentially part of its phenotype. And in the case of, for example, a spider, you know, they, they don't go to spider school to, uh, to learn how to build those elaborate webs. And if, if you or I were charged with the task of building a web like that, it would be quite a challenge. So um, we have to sort of think about where the, you know, motor instructions come from for the spider, all the the, the myriad uh, muscle contractions that, that cause the movement so that, the, you know, the, the creature actually builds the web. Where is that all coming from? Because it's not really learned during their lifetime. It must be somehow, uh, you know, stored in the, in the actual genome. That's just a fascinating idea to, you know, extend your idea of what is a phenotype to, uh, you know, sort of the world around the phenotype as well. And then there are examples like, you know, the beaver's dam and the, and the bird's nest, you know, various examples. in, in the, And you can, what's most fascinating about that to me is that I, I quickly um, saw the analogy with my own life, you know, like everything around me was also part of, what I produce, of course, with humans it's different because we're sort of born to some degree with a blank slate, but we can pretty well definitely say that a, a spider doesn't get much, you know, learning neurons. Well, that was the interesting part of Wit Reed. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure whether Dawkins wrote about Wit Reed in the context of, of what you've discussed, but the thing that fascinated me about Whit Reed was that they gave the spiders a, a wide variety of different drugs, and this affected the way they built their webs um, quite profoundly. And did anyone I, did, did any one of them build a map of the world? No, no, not. I mean, I think what, what was particularly interesting was that um, it's almost a, a kind of reinforced urban legend. And certainly, when I started researching this topic online. I found a number of dates and potential papers that related to this until I got back to the original I've, science article. I've seen a, an incredibly uh, funny uh, video on YouTube. <laughs> yes, that's part of the urban legend component to this to this story. But the thing that interested me is that the, 
I mean, uh, I just finished my chapter for nature-inspired informatics, and that talks a little bit about the work of David Kirsch. Now, David Kirsch was writing about... Um, Oh, my mind's gone completely blank. Rodney Brooks' work at MIT. And what David Kirsch drew from that was that there was something sub-intelligent that um, Rodney Brooks was trying to put in his robotic ants. And this meant that there was some kind of um, pre-intelligence intelligence that could be tracked from insect life through to uh, humans, fundamentally, that was concept-free. And this was part of the, the reading list that went into the development of Noble Ape. What fascinated me about the spiders in particular was that it appeared, your analysis associated with how the phenotype extends out of the, out of the entity and into the environment is curiously juxtaposed with regards to the spider's behavior on these various drugs. Because what, it, in my looking at Whitfried, it gave me a sense that the spider almost had a sense of self that was perturbed in different directions based on, you know, whatever it had ingested. And this was slightly more than it just being almost deterministically pre-programmed, which has always been my concern with regards to Dawkins' analysis of the extended phenotype, that it's almost a highly uh, deterministic way of explaining things like spider webs, when in fact there could be um, quite a profound amount uh, of intelligence within the spiders that uh, that in some way summons away. And certainly looking at the spider patterns based on um, you know, what Whit, Reed, Reed had, Whit and Reed had fed them indicated to me that the spiders were probably considerably more uh, intelligent just with their you know, simple, uh, simple circuitry than we had probably given them credit for, particularly with regards to uh, the, the diversity of uh, the web deformation I mean, when you think about a spider building a web, and I was thinking about this with regards to talking to Jeffrey about how one would simulate this, it occurs to me that the more intelligent options you gave the spider, the more interesting the genetic algorithms or even possibly genetic programming would be in terms of just letting, I don't know, even know what kind of fitness functions one would give, probably things to do with stability and catching insects. I mean, if you were to write a simulation associated with, spiders building webs. Where would you start, Gerald? I would, uh, I mean, you, you, uh, you're, you're suggesting that we, that we imagine that there's some intelligence involved, but um, I would really um, search tirelessly for the simplicity in, the, in a situation like that. Um, for example, if, uh, if you had a creature that was, um, you know, imagine a sort of a Darwin at home creature able to articulate a number of limbs and having senses so that it can perceive where um, connections are in, in an existing web in sort of the neighborhood of its body. And whenever it has, uh, you know, a concept of a number of connections, it adds one new connection. So that, you know, it's whatever it sort of is in a situation where it fits the existing pattern it has this sense that it's got to create something new to the pattern off over there. And then it could shift around and eventually shift, shuffle into the next position where it's also familiar with. And uh, at that point, plant one new uh, connection as well. So, you know, the, the thing would have to, 
it would have to be sort of a generating algorithm. And I think a generating algorithm would be, um, you know, potentially simple enough that you wouldn't have to attribute intelligence to it. But then if you were to give this algorithm casein or LSD, for example, how yeah, would okay, that... Well, dis- one thing, one thing I'd like to uh, highlight here. I'm not sure if this is uh, uh, entered your mind uh, with regard to this study you're talking about. But you know, we've been talking in the past about the uh, the virtues of uh, peer review, and if you're talking about a study that was done in the 1960s and uh, since then hasn't been replicated 15 times in different universities all over the world, and comparisons made. Then uh, you know how much LSD were the were the researchers on? You know, so I just want to make sure that it's it's this is a real study and that this has really been done uh, because uh, I don't know I, I I can't help but I'm still laughing from the from the video I once saw on YouTube where they uh, it started out as a legitimate study but at the end I think the spiders rode away in little cars or something. Yes, I think it, it has developed a kind of urban myth uh, associated with it. But I but mean, before I, think... I get before I get philosophical about it, I'd like to make sure that it's been peer reviewed and that it's been replicated. Well, it was like in that. science. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to distrust science? I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe. Who knows? Maybe they gave samples uh, to the science editors at the time as well. Um, it was but, the it was the sixties, man. <laughs> well, it was 65, which technically, by most definitions of the 60s, wasn't really the 60s yet. But anyway, rather, <laughs> okay. than, getting, rather than getting too um, historical as opposed to philosophical, I mean, what I got from it was the sense that these spiders obviously had... And it's an interesting argument, because I don't think the extended phenotype eliminates the idea of intelligence. I think what intelligence comes into the extended phenotype is just a, a different set of parameters. And this is yeah, well, imagine, I mean, you, you talked about determinism. I don't think that's so much the central issue, to be honest, um, because, um, you know, what you should picture is more that um, you've got a genome and it's uh, it's cobbling together during embryology, it's cobbling together a bunch of neural networks and neural networks that, you know, operate dynamically in a dynamic world, but they don't uh, change their connections very much. You know, we've got, uh, we've got neurons that are uh, you know, perfectly happy to dissolve connections and establish them elsewhere. So, you know, and we've got a whole bunch of them to spare. So we're just sitting around, uh, you know, forgetting this and learning this, and, and uh, you know, we go through our whole lives uh, serving the memes, you could say. But when you go to a spider, you know, they've just got this tiny little head. So what I imagine is that the genome sort of, you know, fabricates uh, piece by piece a sort of a, a neural network that is, from that point on, relatively, uh, you know, static. It doesn't change anymore. It's you know it's not related to determinism anymore. You've created a neural net that functions during a lifetime, but it just doesn't change during that lifetime. It's it's you know built by hand by the by the by the genome, and you know so that sort of absolves you from the problem of determinism. But it still doesn't explain wit and read particularly well in terms no. of. No, I'm I'm calling that that study into suspicion a little bit, but I'd like to hear more about it. Uh, if you can tell me what sort of the, the characteristics were produced, I mean, 
the way I would uh, want to analyze them is I would want to think, okay, suppose, um, you know, suppose you're a spider, suppose you, you only understand your very local environment, you don't understand anything about the universe, you don't really think about flies, you're just uh, uh, following this compulsion to build a web and, and damn it, if it doesn't catch some for you, you know, you're just not uh, conscious of the whole uh, big picture. And then um, try and figure out how to, um, you know, to cobble together something like that. And, you know, this study, uh, you know, what did the spiders do? Tell me that. Do you, do you remember what they actually Certainly. do? Certainly. I mean, I, I remember visually because the, the webs are very noticeable. I mean, if you imagine the, the caffeine web and what, I, for, folks, for folks listening in who have access to the Internet, uh, you can, I think, pretty easily, and I will do it as I say this, um, look for Whitread spider web in Google Image Search, for example, and it will provide a few of them, hopefully. And, and don't forget the YouTube video. <laughs> yes, well, can't. I mean, there's a, there's a wide variety of, uh, of YouTube videos. I'm just trying to find one that uh, has the web, so I'm not going strictly from memory, but actually from something that's... Um, well, what do you remember of it? Well, what I remember of it was that the the things that interested me were um, caffeine more than anything, uh, and also um, I remember the difference between cocaine and um, LSD from memory. But the caffeine one in particular was um, almost like the cocaine one, only even more wholly in some regard. But this, again, is going back on memory. What I found particularly curious, however, is this whole narrative with regards to describing what the spider knows. And the thing that interests me with regards to genetic programming, for example, is that you can very quickly write um, genetic programming algorithms that don't presuppose any aspect of knowledge but can be left to run and possibly fill a solution space that would be greater than one would be predisposed to imagine with regards to a spider. And I think it's an interesting, really, it's an anthropomorphism problem. I mean, on one side, you want the spider to use the simplest possible number of rules, and then biologically you have something that is observed, like uh, wit and read, uh, and then you have to almost go back to the drawing board with regards to what the spider... Again, Tom, sorry I'm pushing you on this, but what exactly did they do? They gave a variety of chemicals to the spider and then observed the spider, what the, the resultant webs of the spider looked like. And what, what did they look like? What, what, how could you describe that? Uh, well, I remember the caffeine one. The caffeine one was... Um, it, it's better that I have it in front of me so I can actually uh, describe it, which isn't a probably a good thing to do over a podcast um but the caffeine one was very disjointed it was a set of uh points where they did very long threads and then very tight spans which were rather jagged and then went off what does this tell you because you know as far as i'm concerned i i picture the okay, DNA. So here's what it tells me here's what it tells me it tells me firstly that a simple model of a spider would say that it would do random things under the influences of uh, a variety of these chemicals, that it wouldn't be reproducible. Random? Well, okay. Well, okay, let me explain random in this result. In a sense of self, which puts the spider at a particular point and puts out 
um, you know, as, as it weaves its web through a standard means, be it through radial means, be it through netting means, be it through a, a series of, of different means, you would argue that the simplest possible way of doing that would just be that it was a point connection between the various intervals on the web. What I found interesting through the read diagram was that the spider had a very, what appeared to have, when it was doing the web un, unaffected by, by chemicals, it appeared to not only have a sense of the interconnecting, interconnecting points, but also have a sense of the web as a whole. Now, when you put the various chemicals into the spider, what had appeared through the webs was that this interconnection had in fact been morphed in some ways by some of the chemicals and had um, it had just lost interest in other aspects of, of web building with other chemicals. Now, the, the high-level effects of these chemicals is typically described in humans, for example, with regards to things like uh, serotonin and adrenaline and these kind of chemicals, which are very large chemicals as they go through the, the brain. When you're dealing with a spider, you're dealing with something which you don't give any attribution to brain or intelligence to, and yet, rather than just behaving in an erratic way, a localized erratic way, in all cases associated with all these chemicals or in groups associated with groups of the chemicals, the spider seems to indicate a far greater knowledge of the entire web as it's weaving it, because these are the components that are actually deteriorating. So, that you said seems to have because yes, it, well, that, obviously. That, I'm that not could very much, you know, but that could very much be the case that it just seems that way. There, there are a lot of things, uh, you know. Uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking of um, the, a new kind of science by um, uh, Wolfram. You know, there's uh, there's some surprising, some, you know, mind-blowingly um, surprisingly complicated things that that seem to come from. Uh, complexity or at least randomness and they come from neither so uh, that you know that's uh, that's exactly my point that's exactly my point that the components that my understanding is if you assume a spider with the minimal possible um, intelligent architecture then the behavior associated with large groups of these chemicals should be considerably more random than you see through Wit and read. Based on what? Well, why, I, why would you? Why would you assume? Why would you assume that? Like the, the way I picture the way I picture it is, you know, the uh, like I said, the uh, the genome sits there and cobbles together a neural network, which is from that point on more or less static in contrast to ours. So this this neural network is firing in in particular orders, and it's causing all sorts of activity throughout the entire body. And this activity normally by uh, by you know the virtue of billions of years of evolution uh, creates a nice web which catches uh, catches flies and uh, and the whole the whole deal is done however you you know you administer some uh, some happy drugs to the to the spider and uh, the neural nets begin to fire slightly differently so it it tends to probably perceive something as closer by than it would have otherwise or it, uh, it tends to, you know, sort of get distracted and forget what it's doing and, and go look for munchies, you know, instead of uh, continuing with, with building the web. It, it, it's not so surprising that there should be some interesting variation in the kinds of webs that produce, but it doesn't really suggest anything dramatic, I don't think. In terms of the pharmacology of what is going on in the spider, 
the trying towards things being random or things being in some way perturbed or these kind of things indicate that there should at least be groupings of the subsider's behavior that come from particular kinds of drugs. So I guess, I mean, ideally we would have had Jeffrey on the call because really I'm, I'm reconstructing in some regard, um, you know, what he emailed me on this. But also I'd like to put it out to the biotech community because I think certainly Gerald and I take a distinctly different perspective with regards to this. And I think this, this topic would probably be, would probably benefit, um, from having other contributors as well who are more familiar with, with Britton Reed's work, also with spiders and pharmacology than certainly Gerald and I are. Um, in any case, Gerald, do, do you mind putting this off for a later date with regards to ongoing discussion? Absolutely not, but it was a really interesting, uh, um, you know, uh, exploration of the extended phenotype idea. I think so too. I think so too. And I think particularly the way in which intelligence maps onto that and particularly, um, you know, particular ideas of simplification. I want to talk to you briefly about genetic programming with regards to Darwin at Home because certainly my um, ongoing peer review associated with Nature Inspired Informatics, I come back to uh, genetic programming frequently as a means of producing quite strange um, uh, movement uh, models and also means of uh, describing uh, complex organisms through uh, things that are kind of an evolution from Carlson's blockies and possibly even uh, from your work with Darwin at Home. Have you looked at genetic programming at all in terms of locomotion and even constructing um, your Darwin at Home creatures? Well, I would be uh, probably exploring that uh, all the all the existing uh, research and studies in in depth. If I were in the process of doing a PhD, but at the moment I'm not, so um, I, I'm not uh, uh, digging through the the existing literature. Um, instead, I'm sort of uh, cobbling together something and trying to make an argument that it should make sense as as I'm going. Um, it, more or less as a way to uh, optimize on time because I just don't have the time to study all that stuff. So I'm, I'm just uh, uh, trying to, you know, come up with something that is uh, has a sufficiently simple basis that uh, that it sort of has to make sense. Yeah, I think this is the the legacy problem of kind of hobbyist artificial life developers is that we're constantly fighting against uh, you know our our other lives basically as we construct. Uh, these artificial life projects. I mean, certainly, I, I hope you'll you'll have a chance to have a look through um, Nature Inspired Informatics, mainly because it's also got the section on the noble lab cognitive simulation that we've discussed on a previous bio to live. But certainly, I'll highlight the uh, particular chapter associated with genetic programming that interested me uh, and certainly resonated with, I think, some of the stuff that you've done with Darwin at home. The thing that interests me in particular is the metaphors um, in terms of island evolution and the idea that this could be put into uh, you know, moving creatures or species or things of this nature uh, in a very profound sense, although I'm not sure how it would all link back together. But certainly I think there's a, there's a need for uh, folks out there who are listening and that have interest in starting their own projects to consider uh, contemporary literature as well with regards to these kind of things as you frame your projects or potentially even uh, help Gerald and other other folks who are doing this kind of stuff 
uh, with your own genetic programming or genetic algorithm implementation. I, I could. I couldn't agree more, Tom. And uh, and I would, uh, you know, I would like nothing more than to have uh, a couple of uh, people on the uh, in the Darwin at Home community who can uh, correct me when I'm when I'm wrong and can give me hints as to, you know, the things that we've learned about how uh, how you know physical, real, uh, biological genomes work and and you know anything in this area that can be described. Sort of concisely enough is uh, is you know very welcome. I love this uh, this kind of stuff, and uh, you know I like to read a book once in a while too. But it's just so limited in the amount of time that, uh, and you know I want to um, I want to create a kind of a, a game scenario, and there's a lot of work involved that's not necessarily academic. You know the whole thing has got to operate smoothly. It's got to be sort of uh, put together right, scalable, uh, etc. So. I have to come up with some pretty novel ideas how to uh, how to make it, you know that that sort of thing. So uh, yeah, that's that takes a lot of work as well. It does, it does. And in terms of an active community, it's a you know it's an interesting problem that we continue to return to is that there are a lot of active minds. I mean, if you look at the uh, Biota Conversations mailing list, whenever the Evo grid comes up, there is always a flurry of emails associated with potential directions of the Evo grid and it always occurs to me particularly because both of us have our own mature projects that uh, if, if that flurry of excitement could be channeled into our own projects as well it may uh, net particular rewards but in complete contrast to this I'm, I'm doing in fact what I planned on doing with Geoffrey uh, Ventrella um, this evening with you Gerald so excuse me that you haven't had the benefit of the correspondence or notes associated with this but our last episode was recorded on the topic of open source, and I got a lot of correspondence associated with uh, both, uh, in fact, on both possible extremes in terms of uh, existing open source developers asking why there would need for additional licenses and also folks who are interested in porting their projects into open source with some concerns associated with what would actually happen to their intellectual property when it was put out into the into the wilds. And I know you and I have had some discussion, Gerald, with regards to the potential need for a, a biota or artificial life-specific open source license. And I know you're uh, very happy with the GPL currently. Um, but certainly the feedback I got from last week, I'm uh, sorry, last episode, related to why do we need another open source license from the open source uh, developers. And my feedback to all who emailed me was that if you look at the existing open source licenses through the OSI board, there are a wide variety of corporate licenses, uh, but not a lot of diversity in terms of uh, ideas or certainly things that would help the uh, individual or the small project developer. And I think this is an interesting problem, particularly when you start evangelizing to folks the benefits of open source the difficulties in terms of justifying um, what happens to intellectual property and what protections actually exist. <clears throat> Gerald, as, as you've developed Darwin at Home, as you've got an interest, as you've shown the project, have you had concerns with regards to the GPL or are you genuinely happy with it as a license? I uh, haven't really had too many concerns with it, although you know, when, when I look at what I'm doing and uh, what its uh, you know what its purpose is. It's not something I'm applying to you know a business application or something that I'm uh, 
you know, uh, trying to sell to a company or something like this. It, it's completely different. And it's also got, you know, in, in my case at least, it's got a very uh, sort of central focus on kind of an outreach uh, approach where where hopefully people will become interested in, in this sort of thing. So <clears throat> when I think about, you know, the GPL has, has served me in the, in the sense that, uh, it was sort of a known uh, commodity. You know, it's very uh, clear that the GPL is being used a lot, so there's a better chance that it'll be defended if something comes up. But on the other hand, um, I, I can imagine uh, a bunch of uh, Biota people uh, getting together and coming up with uh, a number of really interesting features to uh, a sort of Biota software license. Which, uh, which you know, has its own sort of uh, cachet, and and it might have its own uh, particular uh, advantage with respect to uh, you know developing towards an Evo grid or something like this. Uh, certainly, you seem to be coming <laughs> to my way of thinking with regards to that particular aspect. I know in my own eighteen thinking, months already passed. Ah, <laughs> uh, you're getting faster and faster. <laughs> I must be talking about dragon juice spiders or something like that. I don't know, but um. Th- yeah, I mean, I think the the real problem that I have with regards to the GPL is that I followed the historical legacy, and particularly if you look at open source, and this isn't popular in the open source community, but let me put the idea out there. If you look at the uh, if you look at open source as a vehicle uh, for corporate America, in particular, to save a lot of money and uh, ride along very swiftly after the tech downturn in 2000 2001. The kind of licenses that are represented through the OSI board are very heavily uh, focused towards the uh, corporations that have done very well through open source. And my concern with the GPL in particular, and my background with regards to intellectual property rights is that I'm the co-chair of the International Game Developers Association Intellectual Property Rights Special Interest Group. Um, And so I have some background interest in intellectual property rights related issues, but the thing that struck me with the GPL, and I am genuinely sympathetic to copyleft, this idea uh, that you need to have uh, control of uh, the source code in terms of not allowing it to become closed or corporatized or these kind of things. But my concern with the GPL in particular is following the narrative of the uh, amazingly successful vehicle associated with helping corporate America. The GPL has uh, fallen short on a number of occasions and seems to have almost been paid for if you look at the uh, Free Software Foundation and the whole GNU movement, the way in which uh, the large um, Linux companies uh, you know, put money into FSF and the way in which they perturbed the various aspects of the GPL seem to return to a very fundamental idea, which is this idea of copyright. Now, copyright, although it has um, it's a negative connotation, obviously, through things like the Creative Commons, it's critical if you want to enforce your ownership of something in the U.S. And even if you want to give it away, the copyright protection, particularly with regards to corporate use, uh, is absolutely critical, and this is the component of the GPL, which means that the GPL holds the copyrights of the important bits of the GPL-covered software. I'm not sure if they do everything. I don't know if there's a Darwin at Home copyright sheet in, in Massachusetts. But of the important things, they actually hold the copyrights in Massachusetts, which means that when you know the, the large Linux companies, Hewlett-Packard, IBM et al., 
um, want to come and use it, they go to um, the Free Software Foundation as their primary point of contact. And I think there is potential for us to do something similar either where the copyright was held by the individual, because I prefer that. I don't want people to think that we're trying to create a FSS-like biota mechanism to bring in you know millions of corporate dollars into biota. I'd much rather see it go to the various practitioners. But there needs to be some mechanism where the copyright is, is held by the practitioners, and I think biota offers a novel way where we can provide this copyright. It costs 35 US dollars and we would probably need to renew it on uh, maybe a, an annual or an every other year basis with regards to a majority of the projects of the community. But it would change the open source dynamic and I'd like to also see uh, more support for the artificial life open source community because I think if you look at things like SourceForge or these kind of Science. There are implicitly problems associated with advertising and all this related nonsense, and certainly it's movement away from small-scale or individual uh, development communities uh, into you know something which is far broader and bigger. And I actually quite like the community aspect that we have through Biota. So that is my um, kind of five-minute discussion point with regards to why I think we can provide something that's better than the GPL but still adhere to issues of copyleft. Now, the feedback that I received from Herb Noel in particular, and he really echoes uh, Jeffrey Ventrella and I think also Steve Grant's concerns, is that these are people who have put literally decades worth of their lives into their particular projects, and they want a level of protection which they don't see with existing licenses. And I think certainly through discussions with these people, we could probably tailor a license which would be suited for them and also eliminate this, this legacy of... Uh, uh, dinosaurs and fossils, as Bruce Damer refers to, with regards to movies and the you know grainy MPEGs of blocky creatures, as opposed to the original source code. Um, so, Gerald, I mean, does this make sense to you? Yeah, um, I think it, it sounds like a good idea. It also sounds like a lot of work, and uh, and it sounds a little difficult to know when you're right and when you're not right. You know, you'd have to have somebody sort of check it out, somebody who maybe even costs some money. So. You know, this this uh, is probably a, a central issue. You've got, on the one hand, you've got to um, produce something that is, you know, inherently able to um, establish enough consensus that enough people decide to use it at all. Um, and on the other hand, you know, it has to be something special. It has to be something that, that uh, really um, captures the, the unique nature of this kind of software, if, that, if that's possible. And, and like I said at the very beginning, it, 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 it's potentially quite a bit of work. That's, that's my main concern. The interesting dynamic here is that Bruce has a, a number of uh, primary connections, some of which he's passed on to me, uh, with the Creative Commons community in particular. And obviously the, the line that I've taken with regards to copyright, particularly GNU and these kind of things, is slightly different than the Creative Commons um, working group. However, there are intellectual property rights lawyers and people that are uh, genuinely sympathetic to this kind of uh, discussion, particularly when you talk about already existing developers that are looking to move their, their body of works under this kind of license. So I think we have a, a resource of people who would work for uh, nearly nothing uh, but be of the caliber of... Um, uh, you know, Lessig and people like that who... Yeah, uh, maybe, that, that would be great. And and uh, maybe this could even be part of Bruce Damer's PhD. 
I think, well, I, I don't want to prompt him in any particular direction, particularly as he's looking at making films currently. Um, but yeah, I think the, um, the license part of it is something which is subtle. I've also said to him as an open source developer, the things that motivate people to contribute to your project uh, tend to be very fickle, but you need to almost have a kind of, uh, you know, leading from the front mentality if you want people to actually come back and contribute their time and their source code. I think Bruce, certainly for the past decade, has been in more of a kind of uh, management role where he gets the funding and signs the checks in terms of what he does in digital space as opposed to actually kind of coding in the trenches. But I think rather than coding in the trenches, if he was part of a licensing movement, particularly a, a you know, well-publicized public licensing movement associated with bringing all this intellectual property together, that would be equivalent, basically, to him you know, writing a lot of lines of code with regards to the project and certainly getting uh, contributors such as uh, Jeffrey and probably people like Steve Grand and you and me and the wide variety of others to contribute. So I think it's an interesting problem in terms of framing the Evo grid and the potential of a, a future license in a, in a similar time frame. But I think these are the kind of discussions that I'd like to be making with regards to... And I think it, it all resolves back to the quality of life issues that we've discussed very briefly in the past as well. I mean, what we talk about here in terms of we'd love to you know, have the time to read the papers to put into our projects and the, the finite amount of time and how we utilise this all comes back to the quality of life issues as well. I find this particularly now as I'm writing for publication, I think I'll probably attempt to uh, get a chapter or two in next year as well in these kind of time frame cycles. My development time has, has gone down to virtually nothing as well. However, at the same point, I'm motivating a different group of people than I would be through um, just doing releases of Noble Ape currently. And I think the license component, and particularly when we start having serious discussions associated with intellectual property rights, which hasn't really been had in the community as a, as a whole. I mean, this is why I'd like to have Jeffrey on the call uh, this evening too, because obviously he has a kind of legacy of developing stuff that goes in a variety of different directions that he doesn't necessarily have any control over. Um, and if you look at his primary work, although obviously he's, stood on the shoulders of giants with regards to where he's come from, the particular directions that he's taken. If you look at uh, a game movement, for example, entities moving in a realistic fashion with genetic algorithms, uh, you know, Jeffrey has a, a wide variety of research which is quite fundamental in contemporary game development. Um, so having him on the call this evening would have given us a, a greater degree of insight. I mean, my communication with Jeffrey gives me the indication that he's very easygoing with that kind of stuff. But I think of a community, if we kind of motivated the collection of this, we could then look at how, um, whether this became a game SDK or these kind of things, how the community would then uh, move through these kind of issues. Now, Biota, in a structural sense, is part of the... Uh, contact consortium and certainly in recent months particularly with the success of this podcast I've talked to Bruce about the potential of Biota either spinning off or in some way changing the relationship with regards to the consortium because most uh, aside from the Digibarn which is uh, Bruce's um, computer history museum uh, Biota is one of the most active aspects of the consortium and these kind of problems that come through um, seem to indicate that Biota might either spin off or form a, a different role uh, in the consortium. Gerald, 
When you looked at the uh, video that I put out recently of Biota 3, uh, what were your thoughts with regards to that time in terms of a kind of contemporary context as well? Um, I don't know. I, I, it was a, it was a surprise actually to see those old videos back. This uh, that was that was a long time ago. It was kind of a strange times for me as well because uh, went over to uh, San Jose and it was it was a, a very inspiring but sort of bizarre few days. Uh, what I was thinking was was sort of like uh, wow, we were almost there then, and then somehow it stopped. You know, <laughs> it was like there was something really. There was some real momentum building up, but I guess it was the, uh, the dot-com crash. Sort of, uh, well, particularly you know, when the people put their hands in the air. I mean, I thought I there was a section of the DVDs, there was a series of DVDs, and I missed your section because you were talking about how XML would be transmitted through uh, Biota World, and it was a, you know, a beautiful kind of heart back to a Gerald in a kind of historical sense and also a contemporary sense as well in terms of what we're doing with the Evo grid currently. But it's a section, and really what you see in the video is I think the last 18 minutes of probably an hour-long discussion. Uh, but it's a section where everyone raises their hand, you know, who, who requires this to happen in order for the continuation of their own research? I mean, this kind of element where you see all the hands go up, basically, and you think, well, with that kind of momentum, with, you know, 30-plus people behind us at that point... As you say, it needed to be something that was particularly catastrophic in order to cause things to stop. But at the same point, our contemporary community is based on people that aren't paid. So we have, in fact, evolved into something that's considerably more strange and somewhat more dynamic, but probably may have a, a survival mechanism built into it that will eventually get these things done. I mean, is this your thinking? Yeah, I guess we've had a kind of an extinction event, right? <laughs> yes, where the where the grizzly old dinosaurs have survived somehow through the extinction of it. <laughs> no, we're the we're the velociraptors that are going to turn into birds. How's that? Uh, that's a good metaphor. I was thinking that we were probably the the lungfish that went back into the ocean again, or something like that. But yeah, probably probably equally uh, velociraptors becoming birds. In terms of historically, and I asked this of Bruce Damer, but what have you learnt from that transition that would would stop the same thing from happening again with regards to something like the Evo grid. Yeah, well, and, you know, so the, the things we were just talking about now, if it were, I, I'm not sure how feasible it is, but if it were possible to uh, develop some sort of biota uh, license that, that is, you know, compellingly biota oriented somehow and, you know, stands out in, in that respect and, and respects you know, pays pays homage to particular things. I, I'm thinking, by the way, that it might rhyme quite well with some one of the uh, Creative Commons licenses. I don't know if you've, you've been through those, but that, that's one uh, potential idea. But if this, if there if there were a way to sort of develop a, a, a license as a, you know, you could you could think of it as the conceptual basis of the Evo Grid. If you want to talk about Evo Grid, if there's if there's a license that people can agree on, I'm pretty skeptical whether that will happen. But, uh... <laughs> I think it'll take some compromise, and certainly you know, my vision is um, willing to be perturbed in a, a variety of different directions. I think the group consensus is probably far more important than my own particular, but I mean, I think that's the nature of the Evo grid as well, as the group consensus will probably not contain any of our ideas. It will be uh, some hodgepodge that Bruce adjudicates after, you know, 
tens of thousands of people have seen a, a video. So yeah, it, it could go in a number of different directions, but certainly my own thinking is that we need to have this kind of discussion and maybe be a little bit more intelligent thinking about the history and thinking about how we avoid repeats of the history in some really fundamental sense. Well, Gerald, you've been a wonderful uh, conversationalist again. It's a pity that Jeffrey didn't uh, call in. Hopefully we'll have him back on a, a future Bios Live potentially to discuss spiders on drugs and how to simulate them. If other folks would like to contribute with regards to that particular paper or ideas, uh, feel free to correspond with me, tom at noble8.com. I'll put Gerald on the CC chain. Or even better, subscribe to the Biota Conversations mailing list. You can go to biota.org and there will be a mailing list link and the conversations link in particular from there, you can subscribe and talk to the Biota community and raise questions and ideas and start debate. It's a, a vibrant mailing list, and certainly a lot of what is discussed on this podcast is reiterated, rehashed, and different ideas come through through that mailing list. Gerald, it's been a, a pleasure as always to have a chat with you. Yeah, um, likewise. I look forward to future discussions and the potential that we can... Uh, we seem to be agreeing about a lot of things. There's something fundamentally it's wrong here. It's frightening, isn't it? I'll, I'll need to get more opinionated about a few things, clearly. I think we can find enough to disagree upon, Tom. No problem. Very true. Very true. Well, it's been a pleasure as always, Gerald, and thank you very much for the folk for listening in. Our topic in two Fridays' time, Halloween, Friday, October 31st, 8 p.m. Pacific, trick or treat, scary artificial life-related stuff. I have my own... Mary Shelley, Frankenstein-related story associated with Noble 8, which I will share with you all then. Thank you very much for tuning in.